Let's pray. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to meet, um, to share fellowship with one another, to be in the Spirit with one another, to glorify the name of your Son together, and to learn from your Word. So help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay. Um, Dr. Truman looked at the whole idea of how, how do you... The question was similar to that. How has culture gotten to where it is now? And what can we do about it? By posing the question, how is it that the statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, has come to make sense? Um, this is kind of like a paradigm question, and of course, the book really isn't about transgenderism per se. It's about expressive individualism. It's about changes in culture wrought by ideas. I should have looked it up and I forgot. Um, there's a very famous quote, ideas have consequences. Johnny, who said that? <laughs> you should. And they do. Um, Sometimes it takes a while for these ideas to work out um, how they affect a culture and society. And what Dr. Truman did, and I think uh, very ably, was trace how the idea of identity expressed in the term expressive individualism has come to not just be expressed, but typify who we think we are today. Uh, we are all expressive individualists. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a disease and we're all infected. So you have to consciously be treated. Um, so we're going to look at the question in a couple of different ways other than Dr. Truman. And I'm kind of going to move, going to shift once and I'm going to shift again. The first thing I'm going to do is talk about uh, how this is not only a question of ideas but a clash of worldviews. Um, and I'm going to compare, by looking at the scriptures, what we could call Christian theism to secular humanism. Theism is just the belief that there is one supreme personal God. So Jews are theists, monotheists, but in general the term theism refers to monotheism. Uh, Muslims are theists. Um, there are some deists, but they're not theists. And Christian theists... Uh, uh, believe in the supreme revelation of the one true God through Jesus Christ. Uh, secular humanism, which is it's kind of a portmanteau word. There really is humanism. There's an American Humanist Association. That's their symbol on the globe on the left. On your on your right. Um, my left, um, and of course the happy little pride rainbow ribbon wrapped around the earth. Um, so calling it secular humanism, there's no uh, church of secular humanism in the formal institutional sense. There are institutions of humanism, though, and they really do uh, believe the things I'm going to show you compared to Christian theism. Uh, there is such thing as Christian humanism, but philosophically speaking, it's not much discussed anymore. 
So it's also sometimes called secular progressivism because there's also non-secular progressivism. Progressivism is the idea that the human history progresses. It goes from good to better to better. Uh, there are many well-known secular humanists, some of which are also the same ones in Dr. Truman's book. Sigmund Freud was one. Uh, other uh, psychologists, um, B.F. Skinner, the behaviorist, Abraham Maslow, he of uh, self-actualization being the highest human good. Uh, scientists like Carl Sagan, Richard Dawkins, uh, philosopher like Bertrand Russell, Margaret Sanger, uh, who was the, the matriarch of Planned Parenthood, and of course, Ted Turner, who started CNN, so that explains a lot. He once said, Christianity is a religion for losers. That's a quote. Uh, you can verify it. Um, let's see, many of those... Um, Sanger, uh, oh, and John Dewey. And John Dewey, I wouldn't say he was the most influential humanist, but he's probably the one who um, is most deeply responsible of all these other than maybe Sigmund Freud for the way the culture is the way it is now because of his effect on education. All, almost all public education and any Christian education built on a public school model is influenced by John Dewey. But I won't go into that right now. Um, Carl Sagan, uh, Dawkins, Turner, they've all received the Humanist of the Year Award. So this is, this is a comparison between the two. So this is a comparison of two worldviews there is, it's another way of looking at how we have come to have this culture that we have. Uh, Truman's is good, and it's a very focused, I, I don't want to use the word narrow because that implies that there's something wrong with it, but he's focused on one idea. Um, in some sense, humanism defines itself by what it is not. Um, supposedly, they're pro-human, but ultimately because of what they believe, they end up being quite anti-human. I'm not going to go much into the sources and philosophy of secular humanism. What I want to focus on is how the culture has come to embrace it and embrace those things that are opposite from what Christian theism says. Some of these things are just going to be so obvious, so I am only surveying this. There is one God, the maker of heaven and earth, as it says in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I once read a uh, statement from a, uh, Kurt Giberson, I think. Was he at Eastern University? He was trying to defend theistic evolution, which I don't want to argue about now. But he said, creation is a secondary doctrine. Ooh, and I, I mean, that's what, that's what the kids today call cringe. Um, that's so absolutely wrong. If you don't start with the universe as a creation, you get nowhere. Um, separate from God. In secular humanism, there is no God and no reality beyond material existence. This is, of course, anathema 
to Christianity, Judaism, and and uh, Islam, but particularly the God of the Old and New Testaments. The universe is a creation, therefore, that follows. Uh, and I won't read all of it, but in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, I think it was Frank Borman, correct me if I'm wrong, who read that, and I think it was Apollo 8, that did not land on the moon, but circled the moon. Um, he couldn't do that now. Uh, it would be considered a violation of the separation between church and state. Um, so the universe is a creation, uh, was created ex nihilo by God. In secular humanism or humanism, uh, it's going to sound a lot like atheism, and it is, but it is atheistic humanism. The universe just is. It's, it's a brute fact, as is said in philosophy, but it, it isn't really a brute fact. It requires an explanation. Uh, either it is eternal or some will say it sprang from absolutely nothing. Now, none of these ideas is coherent, but it's not my point today to try and argue with them. So if you say, hey, that's contradictory, well, you're right, it is. Um, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. Now I feel like singing. Um, <laughs> Who's that? Who sang that? Was that, was that Maria? Anyway, it's, it's from, it's from uh, Sound of Music. Um, human beings are created. This is kind of where the uh, uh, water hits the wheel, as they say. Human beings are created in the image of God, male and female. You would not think that was controversial. So in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27, and again, I'm going to be very quick. Um, I mainly, I, this is very similar to proof texting, but... Um, but it's not. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. That also speaks to the purposes of humanity and I'll get to that in a minute. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And again, I'm not gonna pause. This would really... Systematic theology would be a great thing to teach, by the way, but what does the image of God even mean? Um, it does mean, though, that we have a definitive nature. Uh, in humanism, atheistic humanism, human beings are just the end product of unguided natural selection over time, which is called evolution. And stop me if you have any questions. So from the above affirmations, it follows that in Christian theism that the universe and humanity are teleological. That is, there is telos from the Greek word en, which can mean and does mean purpose or goal. There is design, order, purpose, and meaning inherent in the universe and humanity that reflect the character and purpose of their creator. In secular humanism, from the above affirmation, it follows that the universe and humanity are ateleological. There is no design or purpose or meaning inherent in the universe or humanity. 
Order, purpose, and meaning must be created by humans and imposed upon nature and the world. In Truman's book, and I can't remember if he even mentions the terms in Strange New World, but he does in Rise and Triumph of the Human Self, Christian theism view lends itself to the idea of what's called mimesis. We have a nature. Everything has a nature. Everything that's created is, is going to fulfill that nature and purpose according to God's designs. That's called, and we should seek that in our lives. One of the things that we do in mimesis is seeking shalom. So that connects with, you know, insert entire, you know, series of lessons on wisdom literature in that mimesis part right there. On the other hand, secular humanism is poesis. We will make ourselves and even try and make the world as we want it to be because we believe we can impose our own meaning and nature and purpose on the world itself. There is a, I'm not going to read much of this because I don't want to pause too long. Um, this is uh, First Things Magazine. This is an essayist by the name of Mary Eberstadt, senior research fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute, a uh, Catholic writer. She says, um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously defined the principal trait of the 20th century in four words. Men have forgotten God. So far, the 21st century might be summarized in six men are at war with God. Awakened from agnostic slumber by new forms of temptation, chiefly the sexual revolution, humanity is at war with God over a question that reaches back to the beginning of time, who exactly should have power over creation? And it's a really good essay. It's probably available online now. And she argues that is part of our cultural condition that Men and women, and particularly many of the elites, global elites, uh, believe that they are in charge of creation, not God. So we are at war with God. First thing I thought of, I don't know it was the exact first thing I thought of, but one of the first scriptures I thought of when I read her essay was Psalm 1, which is both messianic and, not Psalm 1, Psalm 2, verse 1, messianic and eschatological. Psalm 2, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? Why are they at war with God who shall be, about who shall be in charge of creation? The kings of the earth take their stands and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. This is, I think, deep down the godless attitude, and I'll get to spiritual reality about what uh, Truman was talking about. But I think this is deep down, part of the attitude is godlessness that lies behind much of the attempt to affirm things that are manifestly false. A man is a woman if he says so. Quote, same-sex marriage, quote, is the same thing and perfectly normal as regular male-female marriage. We can do anything we want of the creation because it doesn't belong to God, it belongs to us. I won't completely continue, but I'm going to read the next couple of verses. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger. So, of course, God will have none of that eventually. Uh, Next in our comparison, Christian theism, 
I'll keep this in. Marriage is a relationship created by God between one man and one woman for life. The man and woman uh, are created um, for one another. The man shall leave, I think, I've, yeah, 2, 23 and 24 is down there. Uh, in Matthew 19, 4, 6, Jesus repeats this. God created the male and female. The purposes of marriage are joy and intimacy, mutual help, establishing of family, and stewardship of God's creation. Notice at the end of that, uh, you get what's called the cultural mandate in some circles. When God says... um, Rule over the fish of the sea and the, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Men and women are meant to have dominion over the earth in God's name. That is part of what it means to be created in God's image. Uh, I think there is an essential resemblance too. That's a functional definition and there is also an essential definition of the image of God. Um, Malachi two fifteen talks about uh, the produce uh, that stay. You should you you don't want divorce because you need to produce godly offspring. The Song of Songs, which we are going to, uh, which we are studying, we'll, we'll, we're going to finish that on Sunday, and then wrap up wisdom literature the Sunday after that. Uh, really speaks to the joy and in intimacy. Uh, it doesn't mention procreation in there at all. And so I really take issue with the fact that this is supposed to be the primary, if not only, point of sexual intimacy in marriage. It is important. And as a matter of fact, to disregard that is to disregard the telos of marriage and sexuality. But it's not the only thing. Um, And finally, marriage is a reflection and echo of Christ's union with the church. Uh, Ephesians 5.32. should put bookmarks in all these places. Okay. Well, I can't. It's just flipping him to him. That's not just a Baptist thing, right? Um, Ephesians 5.32. Um, he's been giving uh, advice to wives and husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Boy, is that often much too interpreted, uh, much misinterpreted. Then he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loves the church and gave himself up for her. But then he says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. This is... Um, more this is this is not that that <clears throat> marriage is sort of built on the relationship comparing a relationship between Christ and the church but that it is emblematic of it that is an intended to ref, be a reflection and an echo of Christ's union with the church revelation 19:68 talks about the the bride the church being prepared for Christ and the marriage feast of the Lamb in heaven. Secular humanism, this is not going to be any surprise at all, 
Um, even when Truman doesn't go into it in detail, it's sort of reflected in what he says. Marriage, uh, according to secular humanism, marriage is a human, social, cultural construct, construction with no divine pattern or sanction. Now, that's been around for 30 years or more, 30, 40. What's new is that now gender and even sex are considered social constructions. It's just this is what humans tell ourselves. And if you approach life from a Darwinian perspective, you can never really talk about a, a essential nature because change is never done. There is no such thing as any kind of stable nature because we are not creations. The purposes of marriage are companionship and individual fulfillment. Um, one thing that's pointed out that uh, so-called same-sex marriages are are sterile. You get you do get couples that will have surrogates or adopt, but as a matter of fact, they're again not following the telos, the the law of marriage, and not using the law as separate from law and gospel. The telos of marriage. Uh, is to uh, be fruitful and multiply and fulfill the earth. Of course, those of you who are thinking way ahead will think, well, that doesn't even make sense evolutionary because if everybody got married to the same sex, then the species would go extinct. So that kind of behavior is really not survival of the fittest. But yes, you're right. What I'm saying is that secular humanism not only contradicts what Scripture clearly says, it contradicts itself. It is incoherent and disordered. Marriage has no significance beyond its human usage because there really is nothing beyond the physical material plane. Um, any questions there so far? Now, I admit you're going to have to trust me, take my word for it, that I'm presenting secular humanism fairly, but I believe that I am. Um, I'm not going to take time to drop into every one of these things, but for example, this is Jason Fry uh, in the Humanist Magazine. He's head of a humanist association and some LGBTQ plus rights organization. So what is marriage? I would define marriage ideally as a long-held established civil institution based upon cultural expectations of long-term often lifelong, committed monogamy and mutual respect between two non-related adults participating in a mutually consensual intimate relationship. Unfortunately, a lot of people would agree with that definition. Such a marriage is conjoined by a civilly recognized contract that generally confers civil and social privileges in the form of tax benefits, social security, survivor benefits, and so forth. These are the essential elements of the marital relationship. Well, no, they're not, but I'll just leave it at that. And that's the only time I'm going to do that. So then we get more towards the gospel. Human beings are sinful and fallen from original goodness. In Genesis 3, 1, you, Genesis chapter 3, 1 through 24, you get the story of the fall. Um, Adam was told <coughs> when he was created in the, in the chapter 2, sort of reflection on the creation of humanity. Uh, you, you may eat everything you want in the garden except that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What that is, uh, again, I won't have a lengthy discussion about right now, but I'll just say it's not just a random 
like uh, don't pick up that stick, you know, or, or you'll die. That tree symbolizes man's, and I mean that generically, desire to be his own God. We will decide for ourselves what is right and wrong. That is what the tree of the knowledge of fruit, good and evil represents. Um, secular humanism, on the other hand, says human beings are essentially good and perfectible, particularly if you get the right people in charge and you let them do whatever they want and manipulate humanity, we can make it perfect. Human history is providentially superintended by God toward the end of human redemption from sin, death, and damnation. Read your Bible. What can I say? I started with Genesis 12. You could actually start farther back in, you know, with Noah. But Genesis 12 is the calling of Abraham. Genesis 22, 21 is the end of the book of Genesis. I mean, the end of Revelation 22, 21 is the end of the book of Revelation. The, the entire Bible is about God redeeming mankind, uh, superintending history and culture to the end of human redemption and the redemption of all creation. Human history is within, not, secular humanism would say, human history is within the control of human beings who can bend it toward the end of material utopia. So when someone says, you know, you're, you're on the wrong side of the history or we want to be on the right side of history, history has only one side, that's God's side. Um, but what they are saying is, is if you're on the wrong side of history, you are not on the side that is bending history, attempting to bend history toward the end of a material utopia where everybody does what they want and everybody has everything they want, which is impossible. Um, human destiny after death is heaven or hell. Uh, in Revelations, Revelation 20 talks about the resurrection to eternal life and 11.15, the resurrection to eternal death. In secular humanism, human destiny after death is extinction and oblivion. You just you cease to exist in any way. Okay, I'm going to skip this little one minute. Is that okay? Okay, this, I had a little advertisement for Rod Dreher's book there. Uh, there we go. Um, if we have time and you really want to see it, it's like a minute and a half, so... In it, he talks about not buying into and not living by the lies that the government, the culture, are going to try and force on you. And he says uh, this is going to be uh, their attempt, they're going to be trying to push a soft totalitarian on us in America. They won't arrest you. You know, they'll simply, you know, Make sure you're on a lower tier of health care so you can take the pill, um, as one president said once, instead of getting the operation. Um, there is, in a sense, right now, right here, all around us, I don't know, there could be angels here, but that's not exactly what I'm talking about. Um, I think the only reason we don't see reality as it is, no, maybe not the only and of course that we're sinners and our spiritual eyes are blinded. So this is why we walk by faith, not by sight. Um, but there is a spiritual reality around us at all times 
that is described many, many places in the Bible, the unseen world. Some of it, um, when I'm talking about it, I'm talking about the reality of God, the reality of God's kingdom, but there are also um, evil and demonic forces, which is what I'm going to focus on here. But we have a cultural moment. This is going to be the part where you might have some disagreements. Uh, I will admit I'm, I'm pretty negative. I'm not, I'm not uh, glasses half full. I'm the glasses totally empty. And this is how things are going, okay? So you may, you may feel free to say, wait a second, the Bible doesn't say that. All right, beyond the human philosophical culture and historical manifestations of disorder and death, this is what I think Truman is talking about. Uh, to, to think you are a man that is a woman trapped in a man's body, to think that uh, two men having a, a civilly sanctioned relationship is a marriage, or two women is a marriage, or that homosexual behavior is on the same moral par as... Uh, of heterosexual behavior. This is disordered thinking, and it leads to destruction and death. Behind the manifestations and the ideas that Truman writes about, that we have talked about, that you see all around you, there are a spiritual reality and spiritual entities at war against the saints. Now, in Revelation 13.7, where you get that phrase, this is an apocalyptic and eschatological phrase. That means it really is about how all of this will be revealed in the end. Apocalypse means unveiling, doesn't mean destruction. Um, eschatological refers to uh, the study of the last things at the end of the age. But eschatology is an everyday thing. Uh, and the last days actually started, according to Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 1, as a matter of fact. Um, God, in, in past times, God spoke to us in various and sundry ways through the prophets. In these latter days, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. So the last days began with Jesus Christ. Everything from the resurrection to the second coming... Don't, I'm not a dispensationalist, so don't read too much in this, is basically a long pause. You know, this is, this is just God's providential plan in history working itself out. Um, the Apostle Paul refers to these entities as the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's Ephesians chapter 6. I should have stuck my finger there, right? I'm going to return to this verse, so I'm going to go ahead and read this section. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground 
And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel. In addition, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. I'm going to come back to the last part of that verse, but the emphasis here, the ultimate purpose of this struggle is to defeat evil rather than merely extinguish it. Um, I often use the figure in teaching um, presence of evil in eschatology and the problems of evil. God could extinguish all evil at midnight tonight if he wanted to. And which of, which of us would be still alive at one second past midnight? None of us. We all have, you know, the, the, the dividing line between good and evil runs down through the middle of the human heart, every human heart, <clears throat> not this side or the other side, and it's certainly not one political party and the other political party, a plague on both your houses. Um, the, the ultimate purpose is to defeat evil, not exactly on its own terms, but to, among other things, demonstrate how exceedingly evil is, and through the church, make known the manifold wisdom of God. It's interesting that through the weakness of the church, the, the, the visible church, um, which, of course, is the body of Christ, so the spiritual reality is different, but through that weakness, God is going to defeat Satan. Um, and I am of the opinion, a lot of people, you know, Satan is just, you know, manic, psychotic, you know. I, I think that's true, but I think he thinks he can take God. I really do. Um, I base that on certain historical examples where we want to be careful about identifying historical individuals as the Antichrist. But certainly Adolf Hitler would spring to mind. And he did not give up believing that he could pull this out for Germany until literally he put the bullet through his head in the bunker. He believed he was going to win as Berlin itself was crumbling around him. So the devil will tenaciously hang on, but what are we going to do about that? I'll get to that. Let's see. Got about five minutes. Uh, in Romans 1, 18 through 32, which I won't take time to read, but... Paul talks about the spiritual state of humanity under the wrath and judgment of God for idolatry. They did not give thanks to God, but they worshipped creatures and created things. Um, we study that in Romans in detail. The judgment for this idolatry, Paul writes, is that God gave them over to sin. He repeats that phrase three times. It's one of the most tragic uh, sets of verses in the Bible, the other one being... Um, I think it's Genesis 6, well, chapter 6, where he said, uh, um, it grieved God's heart that he made man, and he was determined to destroy them. Anyway, Paul singles out sexual sin and depravity as particularly emblematic of humanity's refusal to worship God. Now, if you get to the end of that passage, that's not the only thing he points to. But he does say God gives up men and women to the, their sexual depravities. 
I think a lot of that is obviously what's going on. It, it's not that, that God is, is going to judge us. Well, it's not just that God is going to judge us for these things. Is that they are in themselves um, judgments for refusing to acknowledge and worship God. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12, Paul writes that in the last days, the coming of the lawless one will be accompanied by powerful delusion for those who have refused to love the truth. Now, it is, and I used to think it was entirely, about being deluded into thinking that the beasts in Revelation were, were actually worthy of worship, that the Antichrist was the Savior. But I really think, you know, there is such a thing as signs of the times, and, and I can't think of any, again, greater delusion, and I think Truman picked it well, of actually believing and insisting that you can choose your gender or your sex, and that if you don't get with the program on that, you're going to be sanctioned. Um, that is a strong delusion. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, he tells us that the spirit of Satan is even now at work in those who are disobedient. So in 2 Thessalonians, Paul is talking about eschatology, the last days, but it doesn't mean those forces aren't actually working in culture right now. So I'm not predicting the end of the world in any sort of sense here. I'm just saying that these forces are always at work. While there will be a final Antichrist, the Apostle John warns that even now many Antichrists have come, and the spirit of Antichrist even now in the, is in the world. Um, the painting, which when I saw details of this before, and I think as people have said um, online, uh, that this was uh, Satan tempting Christ. This is not. This is Satan animating the Antichrist. This is called, this is uh, in a fresco by Luca Signorelli, kind of a contemporary of Michelangelo, uh, called the, the Preaching of the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the figure in the front. And if you look at the, the Antichrist arms, particularly, let's see, it would be this arm right here. See how the line, this is like the puppet of Satan. You can see how the line of the arm, this is meant to be Christ's arm, but he's just being animated, animated by the accuser, that old serpent, the devil, Satan. Uh, this does not mean we should be trying to identify specific individuals who might uh, be, that should be, might be the representatives of evil, but that we need to be prepared to recognize and defend truth and to stand firm in our faith. So, you mean, take your pick. Let's see, Abraham Lincoln was identified as the Antichrist. Of course, Adolf Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, uh, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, George Bush, uh, Donald Trump, you know, uh, there's an excellent article that I'm not going to reference or read that, that goes through this, this the historical, uh, I attempt to historically to identify the Antichrist, and it's just kind of a mistake. I think we'll know it when we see it. One of those things. Oh, Saddam Hussein, um, Madeleine Marie O'Hare. 
I actually didn't read that Mick Jagger was, but probably somewhere somebody said Mick Jagger. <laughs> Standing firm. What do we do to stand firm in this situation? Um, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, uh, I read the whole passage before. In our struggle against the spiritual forces of evil, the Apostle Paul exhorts us in his well-known metaphor to put on the full armor of God. The armor items he lists are truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, the spirit, and the word of God. Obviously, this is, this is neither military nor political. With these, we, able to, we will be able to stand firm. The action he counsels is prayer. It's, it, notice, it, it's really the only offensive action. You know, he doesn't say go out and stab people and go out and engage in culture wars. He says pray, always be in prayer for the saints. The exhortation to stand firm in faith, in the Lord, in the Spirit, uh, with each other is repeated about 20 times in the New Testament. I did not try and count them in the Old Testament, but it's also in the Old Testament. Here's a couple of examples. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, he says, Be on guard, stand firm in the faith. 2 Corinthians 1, 24, By faith you stand firm. 2 Thessalonians 2, 15, Stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you. And, you know, I would sum up simply what, what this says and what Truman said at the end of his book the church should be the church as the New Testament intends to teach, to preach, to, to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of love, to be a community of faith. Um, Truman finishes his book with this uh, kind of admonition, engaging in cultural warfare, using the world's tools, rhetoric, and rep- weapons is not the way for God's people. I know it's frustrating to see stuff that's going on in the world. I get frustrated. Uh, I do believe in engaging in politics as long as it's possible, but, but not in the way um, that it simply becomes you know, a mud fight uh, and a way to demonize people who may even be your enemies. We're called to love our enemies. Well, I don't have any dramatic way to wrap the conclusion of that up. That's it. Uh, Does anybody have questions or comments or disagreements? Because a lot of that stuff, it it is controversial. Just so you know, for those of you who are theological thinking in the background, uh, I am not a post-millennialist. I don't think things gradually get better and then Jesus comes back. I am a premillennialist, if there is an actual millennium, uh, but it may not be literal. But Jesus comes back uh, at a time, I think, of turmoil and chaos when the saints are in peril. Uh, 